Michael Osterlink here with Jim Turner. Jim is the co-founder of the Transpartisan Review and co-author with Lori Chickering of Voice of the People, the Transpartisan Imperative of American Life. Welcome back, Jim. Oh, thanks, Michael. Glad to be here. So we are in the fall of 2017. There's uh, <laughs> a lot going on in our world. And uh, this would be a, probably a really good time because it's been probably over a year since you and I have had a conversation about your thinking um, trans in the transpartisan space, how you understand what's happening in our world today and uh, what is possible for our world today. Generally across the world today, uh, most people are uh, withholding themselves from politics. And uh, so as you watch uh, things going on that uh, are uh, treated as elections, uh, they are addressing um, uh, the actual involvement of a relatively small number of people. Uh, so, for example, in the United States, we have uh, President Trump, and uh, he has roughly, if you if you calculate out uh, the population, he's roughly 27 percent of the population that supports supports him, generally speaking. And that's basically, if you take away uh, uh, all from the age eligible voters, if you take away all of the people who don't register to vote. You take away the percentage of people who register to vote and don't vote, and then you take away the people who identify themselves as independents, as opposed to either a Republican or a Democrat. Uh, then, if you take away the Democrats, you end up with Trump having about 27. Hillary had about Hillary would have had about the same. But the shocking thing that people are really surprised to hear is Obama had roughly the same support. Uh, so that the <clears throat> what we're looking at. Uh, is being presented to us as a debate, say, a debate between, let's just say, Obama and Trump, just to arbitrarily pick that up. There's an Obama reality and a Trump reality, and that's fighting. But in reality, most people, and we think from the Transpartisan Review point of view, and by the way, Laurie Chickering is the co-founder of the Transpartisan Review, which grows out of our original book, Voice of the People, which grew out of work that Laurie did, creating a book in 1993 called Beyond Left and Right, and on some work I did on myself, my own, which we posted on our website, uh, which we created um, a matrix of American history, which integrated Jefferson and ha uh, uh, Jefferson and Hamilton, and uh, around the same kind of principles. Uh, you, when, what we have with this debate going on between um, you know Erzat's debate, this thing that the media loves to report on, between say the Obama meme and the uh, Trump meme, is is tangential to the real. Uh, facts on the ground of what's happening, because the large majority, maybe between 50 and 75 percent of the population, is off doing other stuff. They are not participating in this thing that's going on, and it's it's wreaking havoc with everybody. I mean, people don't read newspapers, uh, you know, the the mass like they used to have. Don't read newspapers. Don't watch television. Don't go to the movies. Uh, don't play music. I mean, it's all those structures have dissipated completely. So now. You want to watch, you want to, you, you don't watch TV, you watch a screen, and it's all different kinds of screens, uh, and all kinds of stuff is coming through those screens, it's all atomized, and uh, there's no way to make out, under the old terms, what's actually happening. And in that structure, Trump is less a force than he is a result. He's a result of the forces that are working on him, rather than himself working on the forces. And it's it's entire that we spell this all out in the Transpartisan Review, and it might be useful for you know people to look at it. We have a beautiful map that shows that if the people, if you counted the people who didn't vote in the Electoral College, um, they would have gotten uh, well over sixty percent of the vote of the Electoral College. I mean, it's just amazing. 
Okay, so what I'm hearing you say is that uh, the debate, because we're locked, we're in D.C., so we're kind of locked into having to spend a lot of our time listening, thinking, and watching this, um, that um, only a small minority of people are actually really locked into this particular debate that we see on a daily basis. The majority of the people in this country don't participate in the system because they're out busy living their lives. But you also talk about, too, um, various transitions that you've seen our country go through, both on the individual level and the kind of collective historical level, too. Um, you talk about the Jeffersonian, Hamiltonian, or Freedom Order dynamic. And I wonder, with what you just said in terms of the majority of people not really participating in the political process, where does that fit into this matrix of yours? Yeah, well, well I, want it lead to? I want to be careful about uh, the majority of people and where they are, uh, because they are they are acting in their local communities on all kinds of things all the time. That's what the voice of the people is about. And what happens is, what I'm saying they're not participating in is this left-right uh, uh, conflict that is out there. Uh, when you go down to the local level, you'll find people who are... You, oh, one of the funniest things is to read, if you go on, away, on the web and just look at it, read the people who are couples where one's for Trump and one's for Hillary. And it is amazing. They, I mean, they're actually talking about how they live together, how they work together, how this all happens. And across, across the country, people are working in their local communities, on the state level to some extent, to work out all kinds of issues that they're facing. Uh, we have, as I say, several examples in the, uh, in the book. This is from 2008. But we put examples up all the time. On, uh, we put a note out every week on the um, uh, transpartisan operating in the world. One of the ones I really liked was the, um, were, were uh, people that were uh, Hispanic people that were uh, helping uh, break the fast at Ramadan with tacos. Uh, and they, uh, it turned out, when we, when we tracked it, all over the world, there were meetings uh, for Ramadan that included people who were Jewish and Muslims getting together, and in this one instance, several instances, there, Christians joined them, uh, and they're doing this at the local level. But on the national, international level, all you can hear about is conflict, conflict, conflict. But that conflict is at a, at a level of abstraction that's above the actual activity that's going on among people. So what I'm saying is people are actually finding different ways to express their community involvement uh, outside of the uh, partisan left-right battle. Uh, and I, I want to be very clear about it. There's nothing wrong with partisan politics. Nothing wrong with it at all. If you want to be a partisan, that's great. Add to the partisan, transpartisan. If you're a partisan for A, find yourself a partisan who's against A, and get together and talk it through and see what the story is. Do it at local level. Do it. Do it. I mean, now the trouble with the uh, with the Congress is that they systematically, in the Washington scene, systematically objects to that kind of behavior. They systematically do not like to appear in public with people who are their adversaries, uh, unless they're fighting. I mean, they love to fight. It's sort of like uh, mixed martial arts in the political world, you know. That's really great for the media. Uh, and so we have a situation where we have very, we, we, have a, we had a note on it last week, very strong agreement that the uh, missile leg of the nuclear triad should be, repeal, you know, should be uh, retired mm -hmm. because it's, it's unstable. You got people in Democrats, Republicans, thinkers, all agree on that. Hardly anything in the in the paper about that at all. But boy, oh boy, you know, if you get uh, Trump to, to 
uh, uh, tweet something about uh, the sex life of somebody or something, uh, and boom, it's just because the media is organized around having to have readers, and readers are much easier to capture if you write dog, man bites dog than yeah, if dog yeah. bites man. And that's what we get. And I mean, it's, it's, it's important to recognize that's what's happening, and it's important to avoid decrying it because that's reality. Uh, it's like being mad at a dog that barks. I mean, <laughs> come on. Uh, you got to figure out how do you deal with that reality. And it, what's happening is the the the, the public, the, the the human humanity involved, is finding all kinds of different ways to express itself, to interact among itself, and to do stuff. And it's bypassing the old left right uh, framework. And so then we say what we what we see is we create a matrix which has left right and order freedom. And then uh, order freedom are the two big uh, values that uh, governments have been trying to balance or integrate. We call it integrate rather than balance uh, all through history. And so uh, every individual is somewhere on that matrix at any given moment. A moment later, they may be somewhere else on that matrix, but they move around. The way we've structured politics, uh, they can't move around. They're, they're, they're called left or center left or right or center right. And they got to be there and they got to be there on every issue. And people are saying, but wait a minute, I'm a social conservative, and a, or I'm a social liberal, and I'm a, uh, a fiscal conservative, or, you know, they're all kinds of different things. And they don't fit on the left-right spectrum, period. That's why we're saying the matrix gives them uh, a chance to actually fit, and they can start seeing other people that fit differently, and, they'll, and what they find is that on most things they agree. But the politics is real around the few things about which they disagree. And so the politics probes and probes for disagreement. It was so interesting when Obama was running against Clinton, and they agreed on 99.99% of everything, but there was like one thin paper difference, and that became the whole, the whole battle. Uh, it, was, it was fascinating, just fascinating to watch. Uh, so that's, we think that the transpartisan way of looking at things will be an additional tool for people out in the community, for politicians, for everybody. It's an additional tool. You don't have to change anything about what you believe, what your behavior is. It just helps create a larger space for what you actually believe to be a, considered as a part of the overall framework. And for you to understand others as well. Let's, let's talk about understanding others. Um, you talk about on the local level, uh, people spend more time working with each other to solve problems. But then we, we kind of talk about kind of the D.C., inside D.C. politics where it's, it pays not to <laughs> work with the other person. You know, kind of the structure uh, against that kind of sentimentality or sentiment. Um, where does understanding the other person fit into the transpartisan philosophy and how would you put that more into practice? Because it seems to me that even though you have you gave examples of people at the local level working together, more of that would prove useful. And in order for that to happen, you actually have to have curiosity about other people, what their worldview, where they're coming from, what drives them, their motivations, aspirations, values, etc. So talk Well, I think about that. and that's interesting. You said curiosity. I think that's the key point in terms of an individual. They want to be curious about things. Now, if you want to step a little bit back from curious, you might want to say, how can I, how can I make my own personal life more... Uh, more uh, happy and more free and more um, uh, uh, healthy. I mean, this life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How can I do that? Well, one of the best ways to do that is to listen carefully to everybody talking around you. 
because people will, um, they will first of all, everything they say reveals something about where they stand and what they believe. And then if you actually set up an actual conversation with them, you will find that they will say more and more about where they are and where they believe. You'll have the opportunity to remember where you uh, are and believe. And lo and behold, out comes something. You say, holy cow, you agree with that? I agree with that? I, I can't. I don't understand why we're fighting about it. And uh, <clears throat> you got me involved in a project, uh, which is the um, the uh, over-criminalization project at the uh, Heritage Foundation. Mm -hmm. You know, And uh, we went there, and I, I get all of their stuff and look at them carefully, and they put on very interesting programs. Um, and uh, they've got um, uh, a, a, a constituency of people here in Washington from the left and the right, if you want to put an arbitrary way of looking at things, uh, who get together and talk about how the law is actually being, been creating too many things that are criminal. And they're, they're criminalizing all kinds of things. And as I say, there, there are defense attorneys and prosecutors in that group. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, there are... Um, uh, libertarian Republicans like Rand Paul, whose uh, people support that group, and on the other side you'll get somebody like um, uh, Jeremy Raskin, who's a, a very liberal, maybe the most liberal member of Congress right now, who is a constitutional law professor and who actually says, wait a minute, you know, we've got to think about these things. When you start doing that, and I say even in the Washington framework, but more so on the local level, um, one of our examples in the book is about the criminalization situation, uh, and you, by the way, if you can notice, if you read in the press, that there's a big movement to reform the whole criminal justice system and the prison system, and that's not a partisan movement. That's got all kinds of people in it. Uh, but we found um, a group out in, um, I think it was in Santa Barbara, that uh, got involved uh, about prisoners returning from their sentences back to the community. And the problem is, these people come out, if they, aren't, if they don't have a good reentry program, then they make more trouble for the community. So they got the prosecutors, the defense attorneys, the social workers, the uh, police, uh, everybody that was in touch these people's lives together in a task force to come up with a program. And the program they came up with, they said, for example, you know that somebody's going to get out sometime in the, you know, they, they know that the date is X, it's two years from now. So let's start intervening there, not when they get out, but let's start intervening before. Let's find out who they are. Let's get them a buddy in town. Let's find them a job. Let's get so when they come out, they have some place to go. And this whole community of people work together, whether they were left wing, right wing. Uh, you know, there wasn't Trump at the time, but you know, if they were pro or anti-Trump, it didn't make any difference in, in that situation. They would all work together to make their community better, and that's true on all kinds of programs. So we talked about you. Just, you referenced my reference of the individual and how the individual can kind of lead with curiosity to get to understand or understand better the people around them, their worldview. Um, is there a way to create in, either to create institutions that help support that, or to inculcate institutions that exist already with that kind of mentality, so that so that institutions themselves can adapt as they encounter new worldviews, new ideas, novelty in thinking, et cetera, et cetera. Both of those things can be done. The creation of new institutions and the creation of uh, and the influencing of institutions that already exist. And both of them are underway. Um, first of all, all the institutions that we have lived with, uh, essentially uh, the government of this country and most of the institutions that we have are patterned in the same framework I'm going to mention. They basically are institutions that come from 17th century thinking. They come with 18th century 
uh, implementation of those thoughts. And I say 17th century, it's like early 18th century, uh, 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 1700 to 750 is the Scottish Enlightenment, and uh, a bunch of ideas come from there. And then uh, the Enlightenment goes on, and you get a whole bunch of ideas. And so at the end of that century, it all breaks out, uh, and it's uh, uh, all over the world. It's um, the Enlightenment, the 19th century, the American Revolution, the French Revolution. Uh, you had revolutions, you had a revolution called the, you know, the, the Bloodless Revolution in Germany. You had them in Italy. They were all over the world. These ideas were coming along. Those are, those, that's an idea set up that's from 17th, 18th century thinking. Then 19th century, we created a bunch of institutions to manifest that. We created government institutions. We created corporations. We created uh, um, municipalities. We, all these kinds of things were created. And then in the 20th century, we fueled it with enormous, powerful economic energy, basically the Industrial Revolution. It started in the mid, about 1840 uh, in the U.S. It began and, and reached its, its, uh, reached its uh, point of uh, dominance and then just grew. And in, in 1900, roughly, you had the Managerial Revolution, and these institutions just became extraordinarily energetically powerful. And they drove energy into those institutions. In some ways, it's like trying to put gasoline into a, a horse and buggy. I mean, it's it, and we're we're up against it now because we don't have the the fuel that's coming in now through the information revolution is so high test fuel. It's just driving everything, and it's all breaking down. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's as if um, uh, as if you um, uh, were as if you had a net, and information flows through that net. And uh, the old nets were designed to keep a certain size of uh, information module, you know, a certain size of information piece from going through it. And now the information pieces are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and they can go through the old net. And what you've got now is all kinds of ways for information to get out and be effective. Uh, so in that setting, uh, we're uh, emerging with institutions that are new and different. You know, I mean, they're all around us. I mean, where's Hollywood? I mean, Hollywood went from a studio system to a uh, independent uh, production system, and now it's being basically there's a whole batch of it being produced by internet companies. I mean, you know, Amazon's got its own studio. I think Google's got a studio, and they're all putting programs out, and they're getting they're getting huge audiences in the context of today's world, which are minuscule audiences in the context of the world that would preceded it. You had three networks and 70 million people would watch. That wasn't it. Now you got like, you know, 150 or whatever the heck it is, and you get 3 million people on Fox, 3 million people, and you're considered to be a dominant force. A tiny, tiny, tiny little force. It's no wonder only 27% of the people follow any one of these things. And uh, it's, happening in, it's happening in movies, it's happening in records. Records used to be, you know, you put an album out, you had one song worth listening to, but you had to pay for all of them. Now you just go buy one for 99 cents. I mean, that's changed everything. Uh, movies are changed completely. Television's changed completely. Uh, you see it in sports. And this whole thing about the flag in sports, it's, it's, it's an evolutionary thing. The people in the sports arena are now saying we're more than just the thing encased in the uniform. We're actually human beings, and we want to say stuff. And the system's trying to say, well, how do you let them say stuff? The, the NFL clearly is saying we can't stop them. Why can't they stop them? Because no one will play football anymore. <laughs> If you can't, if they can't, in, in, a, in a way I look at, I'm, I'm, I'm an Ohio State fan and I watch every Ohio State game and I've, I've watched them all my life since I was a little kid. My parents both were from, so football's ingrained, you know, and you know how I can, I can tell that it's shifting because you can see the hair out from under the helmets of these players. 
that was an absolute no-no in the old no. days. In the old days, you if you they they made you co- cut your hair to fit inside that helmet. If you didn't, you were off the team. That was it. You're gone. So everybody's focusing on the kneeling, which is like gross expression of this. But all these guys are running around with hair hanging down behind their <laughs> behind their collars, you know, and they're and they're 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 making the same expression as the guy kneeling down. But no one makes any point about that. They used to make a point about that. That was a big issue. Not anymore. And uh, they, they, they got a big fight about what color socks you can wear, you know, the NFL. Mm. You can't wear these socks if, if they're not the right color. They have rules, rules about that. And they find them for wearing the wrong color socks. All of that is personal expressions, uh, speaking out. Um, and, you know, and then you know, the, the stuff they have about d- the displays at the end of the, in, after a touchdown. You know, Washington used to have uh, these huge, they all jump up in the air and make, and now that's unsportsmanlike conduct. Well, they're trying desperately to do the integration of freedom and order about the individual on the football field. But it's not only on the football field, as I say. Records, movies, businesses, businesses. They can't. Poor old Whole Foods. <laughs> poor old Whole Foods. It, it couldn't survive as just a Whole Foods store. It couldn't survive as a store. It had to go be, into become Amazon. You know, the first day I went in, the day they started, you walk in there and it says, Welcome to Whole Foods Amazon. Whoa! I wasn't even looking at a screen. I mean, they were right there in my store. Mm. Uh, everything's going on. Now, remember, Whole Foods itself was a breakout. Whole Foods was a breakout from uh, from a consolidated, very, very vanilla kind of food supply. You had, you know, eight or ten supermarket chains across the country. You had some uh, big independent grocery store movement, which was all consolidated, and then a bunch of little things here and there. And uh, it, it, it broke out into Whole Foods, which, you know, became Whole Foods... The whole organic food system has four percent of the uh, of the food dollar, and yet it's seen as a big, gigantic force. But it's only a conceptual force in terms of economics. Economically, the food industry still dominates without having organic be a major force in it. But you could also see too that uh, in the in the eight to fourteen conventional stores that litter our country, they now have aisles of organic or natural items. But even, even Walmart now cares. Yeah, but the yeah. number that I gave you and counts all of that. The four mm. percent oh, counts really? all of that. Mm. I, 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 one of the things you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a lawyer with a law firm in Washington, so I do have clients, and among them was Safeway for a number of years, <laughs> and it was fun. I went with the president of Safeway uh, down to a thing called the Social Safeway here in Washington, when it was being constructed. It was a fascinating experience. I mean, this guy was from the from that industry, and his family was from that industry, and. He, he now, you know, now the senior, uh, the managing partner of the baseball team in New York, uh, in uh, San Francisco. But he, um, we're walking along, you know, and uh, and there's this, this thing says natural food. It's, it's all under construction. It's not built yet, but they have not not running yet. But they're building it out, and it's just, we go through this aisle, and it says natural food at the top. Because every aisle had a name of what it was. It's natural food. And he says, man, this natural food thing is the damnedest thing I've ever seen. You know. I just go through the rest of the store and I pick out certain products and I put them in here and I mark them up by about 50% and we make more money than you can ever imagine. We make more money here than we do on our on our drugs. I mean, it was like, you know, I'm sitting here saying, whoa, what a society. I mean, it's really amazing. And in fact, you know, um, the way that whole thing came about is that um, supermarkets were charging um, a 23% markup and uh, health food stores were charging a 200% markup. In 1969, and then a bunch of people, back to the earth kind of uh, uh, granola types, uh, shifted from uh, mainstream uh, marketing. They shifted into the what was called a health food store, 
And about a thousand of them looked around and said, these stores are not very nice. I mean, they were kind of dark and dungeon and small, and, but they had 200% markups because the families were living off there, about 15,000 of them. Hmm. And, um, and what happened is these thousand or so feet folks looked and said, hey, we can start another store, another concept, which is a natural food store, which is different than a health food store, and we can charge a 35% markup which is down from 200, so it looks really competitive over here. But for us, it's up from the supermarket front by, from 23 to 35. So I'm making another, you know, another 12%. And, uh, and uh, so that's why when you go into Whole, Whole Foods, it, Whole Foods was one of them, it's the most successful. Whole Foods uh, actually bought all the others. <laughs> but when you go into Whole Foods, you know, everybody looks at it and says, whole paycheck, you know, they look yeah, at yeah. because it's, it's very expensive. Okay, so now what happened is uh, uh, Whole Foods tried to take over... Uh, uh, wild oats and the FTC stepped in and made trouble. They worked it all out. Few of the wild oats were given away to other things, and um, and then uh, and the store took over all. Of the, that is, Whole Foods took over most of them, with one exception. They did not give hold of the name. They couldn't take the name. They kept the name. That is, what the, the wild oats kept the name, and changed themselves from being a retailer to being a distributor. Oh. And then they went to Walmart and made a deal, and they supply Walmart with all the food. Oh, really? So Walmart's over here getting food like crazy, you know, from, from that wing. And all, all, so now you got Amazon jumping in and getting Whole Foods. They're going to fight. And then there are a couple of other uh, vectors in that, in that world. Where the, but that's an example of how everything's breaking down. And the food, the, the, the homogenized American food supply is breaking down, too. You can, get a pretty good, you can get pretty good food if you work really work at it. You know, lo uh, locally grown farm, uh, local farm stuff. You can get that, um, and then every every time Congress does a bill, it's uh, like crazy. Uh, I've, we've been in our firm. We've been involved in the in the um, organic food battle for for years, starting long before anybody knew it was a battle. In 1975, when the Federal Trade Commission proposed banning the words natural, organic, and health food from commerce, they proposed that. So we had to come in with five consumer groups and a bunch of industry groups, and we battled them and adopted them, and the judge said, no, you can't do that. That's crazy. And then if it weren't for that, there would be no organic food market today. Wow. That's what Thank Washington's God. like. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God for that successful effort. So uh, what I'm hearing you say is that uh, it's an interestingly disruptive time. Um, a lot of the cultural energies are, are free-flowing, showing up in new ways, ways individuals express themselves, ways new ways organizations are expressing themselves, and um, new even companies might be expressing themselves. Um, and that's in the mix of some of the older, more established institutions and structures um, holding on for dear life and or reforming themselves, utilizing some of this new energy. Like I heard you say, you know, Walmart is now with uh, the Oats people, selling organic food, et cetera, et cetera. Where is this leading to? Well, first of all, I, I think um, the um, institutions that we have, uh, and I think this is true all through history, the institutions we have are what emerges from the interaction of these more fundamental forces in the context of that time, whatever it may be. In that time, uh, we come up with a set of institutions to deal with the realities that are, uh, are universal. And continuous all through times. I mean, let's just take, just crudely call them integrating freedom and order. And, uh, and, uh, and you, you can see just systematically through history, a thing happens, and, you know, you can call it, you can call it um, the Renaissance, and you can call it the Enlightenment, 
and then you can call it the um, um, information revolution. Those things are going on. You can see them. They just go on and they go on and they go on and they go on. And I think that the underlying reality remains, uh, or you know, that those energies are like tectonic plates under 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 life. You know, under material life, they're they're there and they're moving around all the time. They're creating disruptions. And I don't believe that we are. I think that what's happening is there those power because of the way we've organized and the way we're we're diffusing now those powers are coming through. I don't think we're being disruptive. I think we're releasing powers that we've been holding back. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think that's an important distinction here. Uh, I mean, you know, these, these, the political people, I mean, Trump is an example. The political people think, you know, when you say, I mean, the president of the United States is not like a really nice job. It's a very, very tough job. And one of the ways they get people to take that job is they play a song for them when they walk in the room, they give them their own airplane, they do all kinds of benefits that they can, that they can live with, nice house and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and that's been true of all, God, this is a tough job, it's a very tough job. But, and one of the things they do is they say, this job makes you the most powerful man in the world, person if we ever get a woman, the most powerful. But that's a very tricky concept because... Let's just say we get all the politicians in a room and they decide that they're going to do something about stopping hurricanes. What do you do? Take a vote? <laughs> We're going to vote. We're not going to have a hurricane. We're going to have a hurricane turn around. We're going to make it slow down. No, they can't do that. They are no... However powerful the most powerful person or group of people are, those forces that are underlying everything are more powerful. And the trick, I think, the trick politically is to learn how to surf. Those forces are out there uh, you know, maybe you surf, maybe you tie, maybe you, you know, pull a Tom Sawyer and uh, or a Huck Finn, and you tie a, a raft together, and you go down the river. But man alive, you try to you try to control those forces, dominate those forces, uh, shape you. Uh, you can shape them, but dominate them, control them, force them to be something you want them to be. You're going to just get swept over. So um, for this segment, we're running low on time, but this could be a good segue to plant a seed for our next conversation that you and I have, because. Um, controlling those forces seems to be a very Western-oriented, America-specific um, idea. Different than the conversation you and I had earlier before we started recording, the Chinese, mm -hmm. um, who, because of their Taoist, Confucius, Buddhist uh, past, um, have a different perspective, both in terms of how you work with the energies and then the time frame in which you work with these energies. So I'd love for you to come back. Oh, yeah, I'd be happy to. And then kind of talk about that, um, how, the, how different cultures look at the energies and that what we might learn in our own that benefits um, playing with those energies differently from other cultures. Does that sound well, that's a, that, that's a great idea, and I, I just want to be very cautious uh, and say that the very same kinds of difficulties that we're having surfing the energies here they're having surfing uh, in China. I mean, we, we, uh, I, I spent 10, 11 years actually on the, uh, um, the uh, National Commission for the Certification of Acupuncturists, and basically I figured if we could mainstream acupuncture in the, in the American context, we would begin to start having people have the experience of dealing with a broader way of looking at it. Not, not broader in the sense that they're broader, but broader in the sense that our stuff and their stuff get combined. Mm -hmm. That makes the broader framework. And uh, the Chinese um, uh, have a tough time dealing with the Western uh, mentality just the way the West does. I mean, just a, just a little example, just a little tiny example. We believe that intellectual property is really, 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 really important. We believe that. 
Chinese don't believe that. And the whole, and, and Thomas Jefferson didn't believe that. I mean, it's very interesting because that's a compromise. Then why you got seven year, originally seven years protection for intellectual property, basically. That's a compromise between people who thought that if you invented something, it belonged to the, you were actually not inventing, you were discovering it. If you discovered something, it belonged to everyone. And those people who said, no, I, I've, I've invented it, it belongs to me. Uh, when I talk about this, I try to write about it, I try to say invent, discover with a, with a line between it, make it one thing. You know, are you inventing or discovering? And we made a compromise. And that compromise gave us an, a tool to make humongous amounts of money for certain people. Uh, Dick Gregory, a friend of mine, just died, and we spent a, a lot of time together. I remember the first time I ever saw his, his uh, show, his nightclub show, um, he said, uh, uh, you think that Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin. But that's not true. It was the poor black guy that was down there picking the cotton that figured out how to do the cotton gin, and Eli Whitney looked at it and said, hey, I'm going to patent that. That was his way of looking at it. And that, there's a lot to that. If you go look at, at, the, uh, you look at uh, rock music in the 50s, and you'll see the author of the rock music in the 50s will very often, probably predominantly, include uh, either include or exclusively be the producer, not the songwriter. The credit went to the guy that created the money to get the record out. Mm. And uh, that one of the big changes was when the people started, it was a big battle to get credit to the actual artist. And uh, right now on the internet, hey, what do we have? Massive amounts of of material, you know, uh, messages, work, stuff, provided for free. And then the guys who own the platform take the money. Why should songwriters and, 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 and uh, scriptwriters for Hollywood are going on strike, <laughs> saying or threatening to, hey, we should get money and credit for having done this work because you're making money off of it. Nobody in that social media world is doing that. They're all just pouring their house out for free. And then, you know, the Zuckerberg wing of things pulls all the money out for them. That's why you've got multi-billionaires sitting around counting money because they've gotten free content. You songwriters used to provide free content to the producers of song and songs. They had to fight to get their credit. And a true, every, every producer of content has had that problem all through history and will continue to have it. That's what slaves were. Slaves provided content for free. <laughs> They provided it for free, and then all the money went to the owners. It's a very, very tricky, world, historically long, worldwide phenomenon. The more you can get labor and, and, and contributions for free, the more you can get content for free, the more you can make money at it. Yes? Yes. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there, but we'll have to save that unpacking for the next time. Yeah, and I was just going to say, the Chinese world, wow. yeah. philosophically, the Chinese world uh, tries to, uh, to, to be different than that, and they turn up doing the same kind of thing. It's, there's a natural kind of driving force there. Cool. Well, Jim? Well, wow. thank you. Thank, thank you. you for uh, coming in and having this conversation. All right. We'll fight another to... time, maybe in a year. Huh? Uh, <laughs> No, I'll well, do it soon. Yeah, definitely. But also, sooner. we're doing the transporters reviews, so the stuff's in there, and we'll have more things to talk about when we get together. We can talk about all this kind of stuff. Sounds good. Thanks, Jim. Thanks.